Well, our sermon passage this morning is Genesis chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to be reading to verse 19. Let me encourage you to turn there in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one. There should be one in the chair in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, well, then we'd love you to take that and have that as a gift. Genesis 22, beginning at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid them on the altar on the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this, I have not withheld your son, your only son, I'll surely bless you and I'll surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you've obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Well, actions speak louder than words. Talk is cheap. Don't tell me, show me. Well done is better than well said. 
we can all think of examples of people who talked a good game, but when it boiled down to it, their actions told a different story. Whether it's someone publishing a, a book on virtue and then admitting that they gamble too much, or someone who champions women's rights, admitting that he uses his powers to harass female subordinates, or someone who talks on and on about global warming but warms their car up in the driveway for 30 minutes to drive 10 blocks, or even just someone who apologizes and then does the same thing over and over and over again. Now, we all know it's much easier to say something, to feel something, to say that you care about something. It's much easier to say it than to actually live it out in your actions. And in our passage for this morning from the book of Genesis, we see our forefather Abraham's faith being put to the test. We're going to see this morning whether Abraham's claim to believe God and to trust him and to fear him, we're going to see if it's all just words or whether he's really willing to walk the walk. Abraham cl claimed to love God. He claimed to fear him. He'd even demonstrated his faith back in chapter 12 by leaving his father's homeland and going out at the Lord's command, not knowing where he was supposed to go. He's also had some lapses along the way, as we've seen. He and his wife, Sarah, had some trouble believing that they were going to have a child in their old age, even though the Lord had clearly promised them that they would. And so there remains one test for Abraham, one opportunity to prove his faith, to demonstrate in his actions that he believed God's promise. And that's exactly what we see happening here in the passage Mike just read for us. There in verse 1, we read that after these things, God tested Abraham. Remember where we left this family at the end of chapter 21? Abraham has just sent his oldest son, Ishmael, off into the wilderness. He has settled into life with Isaac, the miracle baby born in chapter 21, this child of promise, the one uh, through whose line the descendants of all of God's promises would be, would be kept. So when chapter 22 opens, Isaac has grown. The word used to describe him there in, or to indicate him there in verse 5 and verse 12, uh, the ESV renders it the boy. But that word probably means that he's a teenager at this point. Right? From, from the story, he's got to be old enough to carry on a conversation with his father. He's got to be at least large enough to carry firewood up a mountain. So some time has passed now, and it's into this family, this presumably happy family, that this test comes in verse 2, and it sort of rolls in like a hand grenade with the pin pulled. Right From this point on, from verse 2 on, uh, the dramatic tension in this narrative just keeps building you see that the, the story slows down until it's almost excruciating. All the way through verse 10, it's, it's so intense you, can almost, you almost can't bear it any longer. Right there in verse 2, the Lord speaks to Abraham. He says, take your son. Okay. Your only son. Okay. Ishmael's out of the picture. Abraham does only have one son right now. Take your son, your only son, Isaac. Yep, that's, that's the one. 
Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Indeed, Abraham does love him. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Everything in us cries out, no. God, we've been waiting for this child forever. Right now, now he's here. You've delivered your promise. We saw that last week in chapter 21. And now you want Abraham to kill him? To offer him as a burnt offering? To, to slit his throat and butcher him and burn his body? No. That's right. Never. Right? God, you're not like that. You hate child sacrifice. You're a God who's faithful to your promises. Right? We read verse 2 and questions just start flooding into our mind. How could God? How could he command such a horrific thing? Doesn't that seem like the exact opposite of what we want God to command of Abraham? Right? What, what was Abraham thinking? What, what was Isaac thinking? What would I do if God told me to sacrifice my child. Was this all a cruel hoax? Was this a, an exercise to see if God could push Abraham over the edge? People have long debated the answers to those questions. Elie Wiesel, the Nobel laureate and Holocaust survivor, he argued that, that God was wrong even to ask this of Abraham. Immanuel Kant wrote that Abraham should have been outraged by this supposedly divine voice. He should have distrusted it immediately. For Kant, the test was whether or not Abraham would be able to see through, and this was not God speaking. Richard Dawkins, the noted purveyor of atheist bombast, shares their sense of disapproval. He writes this. He says, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying, in two asymmetrical power relationships and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense, I was only obeying orders. But friends, I think rather than jumping to our own conclusions, rather than rendering our own judgments, I think wisdom and humility would encourage us to take our cues from the text itself. We should come to this shocking story, this surprising command in verse two and we should see, what is it that the Bible wants us to learn? What is it that the Bible thinks we ought to take away? Why did God issue this command? What was it that he intended to bring about? And how should we feel about Abraham's willingness to carry it out? So as we look at this extraordinary story, let's see three things. First, let's look at God's test. Then we'll see Abraham's faith. And then we'll conclude, Lord willing, by seeing God's love. So God's test, Abraham's faith, and then God's love. So let's look at God's test. Again, we see there in verse 1 that all of this was intended to be a test. God has no desire for Abraham to kill his son. But of course, Abraham can't know that. Otherwise, this isn't a test. Now, what is it that God is testing? Well, it's clearly Abraham's faith, right? 
There in verse 12, the angel of the Lord says, now I know that you fear God because you were willing to go through this, right? Abraham takes this this test all the way up to the very last second. He wasn't pretending to be ready to kill his son. He was literally about to do it. And so this whole event was meant to prove something about Abraham. It was meant to prove something to Abraham himself and also to us. Again, Abraham said that he believed the Lord. Uh, He had sacrificed a lot. He had left his father's house. He had gone out, and that was good, but but his faith is proved here uh, in these events. His, His faith comes down to a test. Will you give up the one person you love most, this son, this son of promise? If Abraham was willing to sacrifice even Isaac, simply because the Lord told him to, well, then his his faith would be proven. It would be tested by fire. You can see the incredible position Abraham was in. It's one thing to wait an unreasonable amount of time for the child of promise. It's another thing to actually be called on then to destroy that child with your own hands. Right? You see Abraham's tension. God's command seems to clearly undermine God's promise. It'd be like receiving a promise. The most wonderful church in the history of Christianity will meet in this building. And oh, by the way, burn this building to the ground. Right? The, the command seems to directly undermine the promise. It, it seems impossible for God's promise to come to pass if Abraham does what God tells him to do. And so it seems that Abraham's left with two options in terms of responding to God's command. Either he concludes that God is untrustworthy, that he is, he's unable to know his own mind, that he's irrationally swinging between one command or another, and so in that case, Abraham must resist him. Or his other option is to conclude that God knows what he's doing and that, in fact, Abraham simply can't see the larger picture from his vantage point. And if that's the case, then Abraham must trust the Lord. So either Abraham distrusts his own perception and trusts God, or he relies on his own instincts and decides not to believe God. Those are his two options. That's the test. Who would Abraham love more, Isaac or God? Who does Abraham trust most, himself or God? And so, friends, I wonder how all this sounds to you. Does it surprise you that God would test Abraham in this way? We see in the Bible that God is referred to as the one who tests the heart of men. God oftentimes tests people. Perhaps the most famous example being in the book of Exodus where the Israelites were wandering in the desert and the Lord tested them to see whether they would listen to his voice, to see whether they, whether he, they would trust him to provide the food and the water that they needed. But it's important to note that God never tests people in a cruel or a capricious way. And I think at, at its heart, that's what we slightly fear, isn't it? That God's just messing with Abraham here, like a, a wanton boy with a fly. Perhaps most importantly, this story might tempt us to fear that, that God would toy with us in the same way, 
that, that God might send us some cruel test to put us in some impossible situation where, where obedience to him means incredible pain to us. But friends, God's not messing with Abraham here. God's purpose is never to cause his people to stumble. James makes that very clear in James chapter 1, verse 13. He says, the Lord never tempts us so as to cause us to sin. No, God's purpose in testing Abraham here and in testing his people in general is always to strengthen. It is to reveal what is in them. Right? Just like heat purifies and, and tempers steel to make it rock solid, Right, just like muscles only grow when the, they're put under stress. Right? In the same way, our faith doesn't normally grow in times of ease and prosperity. Rather, it's when we're called upon to trust the Lord. When we can't see how this story has a happy ending. It's in those moments that our faith is proven, tested, tried, grown. God never himself sets a stumbling block before his people. His purposes are always good. Right? You can see that here with Abraham. You can see God's good purpose by the way that the story ends. There in verse 17 and verse 18, right? God makes it clear that, that the result of this test is that he is, he is perfectly committed to blessing Abraham, that, that he's demonstrated Abraham's faith, and, and he reiterates this amazing promise there in verse 17. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring. Right? In, in you and in your offspring, God says there in verse 18, all the nations will be blessed. That's God's purpose in all of this, to, to test, to prove, to demonstrate Abraham's faith, and, and then to load Abraham's arms with blessing. So brothers and sisters, you're, you're not likely to be called upon to demonstrate your faith in the same way that Abraham was here. If you think that a voice is telling you to kill your, your children, you should definitely check with someone before you act on that. You can be fairly certain that God won't test you in the same way he's tested Abraham here. But the Lord does give us circumstances that are tailor-made for our lives to help us to grow in faith. Try and think of what circumstances in your life, past or present, think about what, what circumstances might be a God-given test of your faith. Maybe the Lord has allowed you to experience deep disappointment. Your job, your marriage, your relationships, they're simply not going the way that you had hoped. And you're left to wonder if you really trust that God is enough to satisfy you. Maybe the Lord's seen fit to give you a difficulty, a persistent health problem, persecution because of your faith, nagging depression, an experience of being sinned against, the consequences of, of a sin you've struggled with. And maybe that difficulty leaves you to wonder if God is really for you instead of against you. Brothers and sisters, James chapter 1 tells us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, God's will for our lives may well include things other than our peace and our comfort and our momentary success. And when circumstances don't go our way and challenges come and obstacles block our paths, we can be sure that God will use those things not to destroy us, but to test and to strengthen and to build our faith. And that brings us to the second thing for us to see this morning, and that is Abraham's faith. Look at how he responds to the Lord's extraordinary command. There in verse 3, we see that he got up early the next morning and got to work. It doesn't seem that God put a time frame on this project. God didn't tell him exactly when to do this, but Abraham got up early the next morning and got to work. I think I might have been tempted to, to procrastinate, to, to delay by a day or two, but he didn't seem to hesitate to obey the Lord's command. And not only did he not hesitate, he went on a three-day journey looking for the place where he would sacrifice his son. That means he had three days of walking to, to contemplate the coming event, to turn over and over in his mind why it is that the Lord had called him to do this. Three days to lose his faith. Three days for his nerve to fail him. Can you imagine Abraham's emotions as he made that journey? Can you imagine the confusion, the sadness, the fear, the anxiety? This was Isaac, his son, his only son, the son that Abraham loved with all his heart, the son that he had waited for his whole life, the son that was the key to all of God's promises for the future. But you see, God is asking Abraham, he's commanding Abraham to put everything on the chopping block. Now, you might wonder if God has the right to do this. As we saw at the outset, some people think that this story makes God seem wicked. But you have to ask yourself, does God have the, the right, does he have the authority to tell Abraham to do something like this? I think the answer is clearly yes on at least two levels. First, all life belongs to God. He is the creator. He is the author of life. Every man, woman, and child, every fish, every animal, every living thing is his handiwork. And so he has authority over it. He has authority over all life as a potter has the right to do with his clay, whatever it is that he sees fit. Uh, later on in the, in the Pentateuch, in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord says this. He says, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Right? We understand that God takes the lives of human beings every day. And while it's often painful, we also understand that we have no right to challenge his decisions. You and I don't have the right to take a life. Right? That's murder. But God can and does. And he takes life according to his own plan and his own purposes. God even has the right to tell others to take life on his behalf as when a government administers capital punishment in a way that's just. And so we need to put this command to Abraham in perspective. That God's not guilty of overstepping his bounds here. 
It's also clear that God has the right to command this of Abraham in that he always deserves to be and thus always insists on being our highest priority. When God gives this command to Abraham, he is essentially saying, Abraham, you have to decide. Who matters more to you, Isaac or me? God has commanded Abraham here to lay his most precious treasure on the altar, to give back God's most precious gift. You see there in verse 5, Abraham understands that what he's about to do is an act of worship. What he's about to do is to proclaim God's worthiness, that God is in fact his highest treasure, his greatest treasure, his highest priority. And friends, that's because anything that you would choose over the Lord is functionally your God. Anything that you wouldn't bind up and slaughter, so to speak, at God's command is an idol in your life. Anything that you couldn't live without is the thing that you worship. If Abraham had refused God's command, it, it would have been tantamount to making Isaac into his highest love. It would be like saying that Isaac meant more to him than the Lord. So friends, don't be confused. You won't be asked to do what Abraham did here exactly. But all of God's people are called upon to acknowledge that the Lord is our highest good and our number one priority. There is no other way for God's people. In Luke chapter 14, verse 26, the Lord Jesus says this. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, and here hate means to regard as of less value, to, to regard as less important. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then just a few verses later, he says, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Friends, we, we won't be asked to make the exact sacrifice that Isaac made, but like, I'm sorry, that Abraham made, but like Abraham, everything must be on the table because the Lord is worthy and he has the right to ask anything of us. You can imagine Abraham didn't sleep much on that three-day trip, but still he's ready to go through with the sacrifice. Uh, you see the narrative almost grinds to a screeching halt there in verses 9 and 10. It almost feels like, an, like a, a thriller, like a movie where they build the tension by taking the kind of critical moment in slow motion. Right? You get every description of every detail there in verse 9. When they come to the place that God had indicated, Abraham builds the altar. Then he puts the wood on it. Then he binds Isaac for the slaughter. Then he reaches out his hand. Then he takes the knife to slaughter his son. And by this point, we're just in agony, right? We just get it over with. What we see here is that Abraham is really and truly ready to go through with this. He doesn't actually commit the act, as you know. But in his heart, in his mind, he has. 
He is ready to go. He raises the knife there in verse 10. And the text tells us it is to slaughter his beloved son. He is prepared to do whatever the Lord tells him to do, no matter how difficult, no matter how confusing. In the New Testament book of James, again, the author is making the point that the faith by which we are saved is always accompanied by and always results in good works. And in order to illustrate his point, James points his readers back to these events in Genesis 22. So in James chapter 2, it says this. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. It's important to see what Abraham is being commended for here. You might be tempted to think that what, what's really remarkable is his obedience, and that's true, of course. Abraham does obey the Lord. But he's not obeying the Lord the way a prisoner obeys his captor, right? Like, I really don't have a choice in the matter. You're stronger than I am. I have to do what you say. No, what motivates Abraham here, according to James, is faith. Abraham was ready to sacrifice Isaac because he believed something. Specifically, he believed that God would keep his promise even if Abraham went through with this command. Right? We see that belief, I think, in two different places. Abraham believed that God would still be faithful to him, that God would keep his promise even if he offered Isaac up on this altar. And I think we see that belief in two places in our passage. You see it hinted at, I think, in verse 5, where Abraham tells his servants to stay behind. Right? That makes sense. It's going to be a little hard to explain what's about to happen. Right? So he tells them, you guys stay here. And look there in verse 5, what he says. He says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. He's going to sacrifice Isaac. But he's sure somehow that they're both coming back. He seems to have worked it out that this was the only way God could keep his promise. In Hebrews 11, it's confirmed for us that Abraham was expecting to receive Isaac back from the dead. So we read there in Hebrews 11, verses 17 to 19. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promised was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Then listen to what the author of Hebrews tells us about Abraham's belief. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, Abraham's faith was his willingness to trust God's goodness, to trust God's power, even when Abraham couldn't exactly see how it was going to work out. He figured, he considered that God was able even to raise the dead, 
And so Abraham understood if God can do that, God can keep his promises. He knew that God had said he would make a great nation of Isaac's offsprings, uh, offspring, and nothing would change that. I think you also see his faith in that extraordinary exchange in verses 7 and 8. We read there, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went both of them together. Now again, Abraham had no way of knowing what God would do. He had no way of really knowing how God would reconcile his command and his promise. But he did know God. He knew that God was a provider. As he says there in verse 14, the Lord will provide. Right? He, he put his trust in God. He knew that God's faithfulness and God's power would make sure that this situation was resolved, even if Abraham couldn't imagine exactly how. And so Abraham passes the test. His faith is proven. In fact, it was deepened through this experience. His faith wasn't all talk. It had been demonstrated. He had come through the crucible and been made stronger. And so the application for us, I think, is clear. The New Testament holds out Abraham as an example to us of faith under testing. Right? We who claim to have faith in Jesus ought to live it out in our deeds and in our works. We ought to live out our faith by believing God's promises. And that brings us to our third and final thing to see this morning, and that is God's love. God is testing Abraham here. But in a way, Abraham's faith serves as something of a test for God. Abraham, by putting himself completely in God's care, by resigning himself utterly to God's will, well, it's, it's putting God to the test in a good way, isn't it? If God doesn't provide, if God doesn't intervene, then everything will be lost. It only remains to be seen whether God will be faithful to his promise. Right? When it boils down to it, if God is not faithful, then, then Abraham is completely wrong to do what he did. Right? If God is in fact like Molech, the so-called God of the Canaanites to whom they would sacrifice their children, if God is like that, then we should hate him. And we ought to disobey him at all costs. Right? Then, then Kant and Wiesel and Dawkins are correct in their reading of this story. But if God is good, if God can always be relied upon to do what is right in all circumstances, then Abraham here is doing the only thing that makes any sense at all. Trusting him and doing what he says. And friends, that's the question for us. That's the most important thing for us to, to come away from this story with a, a clear understanding that God is in fact trustworthy. Because if he's not, then you and I shouldn't rely on him in times of testing and trials. But if God is good, if he's loving, then we must trust him just like Abraham did. And friends, the very good news Again, the news that you need to walk out of 
this building with this morning is that God is in fact very faithful and incredibly loving. What happens next makes it clear that he never intended to harm Abraham or Isaac, that his intentions towards him and towards all the people of faith who would be Abraham's descendants, all of God's intentions are always good and loving all the time. But again, look at what comes next. He stays Abraham's hand. He mercifully spares the boy's life. An angel calls from heaven there in verse 11, telling Abraham uh, there in verse 12 to stop and not to lay a hand on the boy. In verse 13, Abraham looks up and he sees that a ram is caught in a thicket. The Lord has, in fact, provided. The Lord has seen to the sacrifice himself. Can you see the great love of God? Can you see his incredible mercy? Here on Mount Moriah, the Lord has provided a substitute for Isaac. Brothers and sisters, this is the point of this event. This is why God put Abraham through this test so that we could see the good news in this passage. The testing of Abraham revealed that he feared the Lord. The testing of Abraham revealed that he would not withhold anything from God, uh, as it says there in verse 13. Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. What does this event reveal about the Lord? What does Abraham see so clearly now? Well, it's that the Lord will provide. Look in verse 14. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The the name that Abraham provides there is is Jehovah Jireh. Literally means the Lord sees or the Lord will see. It has a sense of Yahweh will see to it. He will provide what's needed. He will provide the very thing that he demands from us, just as he here provides a replacement for Isaac. You have to see that the proverb there in verse 14 is prophetic. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Apparently that was a a saying in in the days of Moses when he was writing this. Well, friends, almost 2,000 years later, that that mountain, Mount Moriah, would be covered by a city, the city of Jerusalem. And on that mountain, in that city, something extraordinary happened, something that actually sheds light on and makes sense of Genesis chapter 22. Because there, in roughly the same place, God himself did what he spared Abraham from doing. Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, did the unimaginable. He sent his own son, Jesus, to die as the final and eternal sacrifice for our sins. But here in chapter 22, we see Isaac carrying the wood for his own sacrifice up the mountain. And 2,000 years later, we see the Lord Jesus carrying his own cross outside the city. But whereas the Lord intervened, 
He stayed Abraham's hand. He interposed to save Isaac and to prevent the slaughter. At Calvary, as the Lord Jesus hung on a cross, no such cry came. God himself endured what he had spared Abraham. He sacrificed his son, his only son, the son that he loved, so that you and I might live. You see, God spared Abraham's son, but he didn't spare his own. He took on himself the sacrifice that our sins demanded. There on the cross, God the Father did not hold his hand. He struck the blow of justice against his own perfect, beloved son so that Jesus might be our sacrifice, our substitute, so that he might bear the wrath for all of our sin. A sacrifice far greater than we could ever imagine. A better father than Abraham, sacrificing a better son than Isaac. Friends, can you see what we learn from this about God's love? Right, Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac was a demonstration. It proved his faith. Well, God the Father's sacrifice of his son also proves something. It shows his great love. In Romans 5, and friends, this is important, we read this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now you might expect that it would say there, Jesus shows his great love for us. But that's not what it says. The sacrifice of Christ, Paul's saying, tells us something about the love of God the Father, that he didn't withhold even his most treasured relationship. He gave us everything when he gave us his son. Right, the story of Abraham and Isaac is meant to give us the emotional and theological vocabulary to understand what it is that God would do at Calvary 2,000 years later. Right, the idea of Abraham putting his precious son on that pile of wood makes us want to weep and recoil. And so we have some small taste of how extraordinary, how loving, how unimaginable it would be that God should provide redemption for us, his enemies, through the cross of his own son. Well, friends, as we conclude, this, this story demands a response from us. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Christ, you are invited to step into this story this morning by putting your trust in God's provision for you. God has provided a substitute. In his great love, God sent his son to take the place of sinners like you and me. And he's provided a way for you to be saved Jesus died as a sacrifice in place of anyone who would turn from their sins and trust in him. So, friend, right now, apart from Christ, you are alienated from God. You are his enemy. You've lived your life for yourself. You've done whatever seemed right to you. And so now you are under God's wrath. 
But if you'll trust him, if you'll trust his love, if you'll put everything on the altar and acknowledge that he is a God who has provided for you, then you will be to him like Isaac was to Abraham, a child in whom he delights. And if you have questions about what it means to put your trust in Jesus, I'd encourage you to to talk to someone, whoever it is that invited you this morning. You can talk to me after the service. I'd invite you to attend the Christianity Explore class that's taking place tomorrow night online where you can learn more about what it means to trust in Christ. And brothers and sisters, do you see what's required of us? God has not withheld anything from us. He's provided his own son. And all he asks of us is that we rejoice in that fact, that we delight in it, that we calibrate our lives according to it. He asks that we love him, that we exalt him, that we trust no one else in times of difficulty. In Romans 8.32, Paul adds his little comment to this story using language that's clearly drawn from Genesis 22. Paul says this in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God did not spare his own son, So what? What's the point? Well, Paul says, how will he not graciously give us all things? What is God going to withhold from you if he didn't withhold even his own son? What what do you need that God is going to say, I can't go there. That's too much to ask. Now, friends, we see here that What we need to know in order to live in faith is that God loves us like this. If we trust that the Lord loves us like Paul says he loves us, if we trust that the Lord loves us enough to send his own son, then we can endure any challenge. We can walk through whatever it is that the Lord has ordained for us. Again, there in verse 12, the angel of the Lord says to Abraham, now I know that you fear God seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. On that mountain, 2,000 years before Christ was born, something was proven, something was demonstrated, something was made manifest so that it could never be questioned again. Right? If Abraham was willing to go there, if he was willing to not even withhold his own son, well, it showed that he feared the Lord. It showed that he had faith in him. It could never be doubted. And in the same way, when a a Christian looks back at Christ on the cross, in the same way we say, now I know that you loved us because you've not withheld your son, your only son from us. Friends, God's love for us, it's not just words. Talk is cheap, but God has in his actions shown us proven, demonstrated beyond any doubt that he loves us in Christ. And friends, that's one of the reasons we come to the Lord's table together every week. 
God has, in his kindness, given us visible reminders of realities that can sometimes feel far away. It's easy as you walk through life in a, in a sin-cursed world, it's easy to forget. It's easy for God's love to feel like it's an abstract concept floating around in the ether. Like, yes, I acknowledge that he loves me, but I don't actually, I don't actually live my life like he loves me. The Lord's given us the Lord's Supper so that we can come together as former enemies who have been made into beloved sons and daughters, as we come as strangers who have been transformed into brothers and sisters by the provision of such an amazing and precious substitute. And we come to the table and we, we allow the Lord, by the power of his Holy Spirit, to persuade us yet again that he loves us, and that he's proven it by giving us his Son and so let's pray together, and then we'll sing, and then we'll celebrate God's great love in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we can't imagine the wondrous love that would lead you to give us a gift like the Lord Jesus, that you would not withhold from us your Son, but would would give him up freely to us. Lord Jesus, that you would love us enough to die for us. It's more, it's more than we can imagine. And frankly, it's hard for us to believe sometimes. We don't feel worthy of such love, and we're not worthy of such love, but, but you're such an amazing God that you've loved us in this way. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us would you shed abroad the love of God in our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you help us in times of testing and trial? Would you help us to remember the great love with which we've been loved? Holy Spirit, would you help us to see that everything that we hold dear is worthless compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ? As we come to the table in a few moments, we ask that you would Bring to, to the eyes of our hearts the reality of your love in giving us your son. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.